Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Good morning, Maranatha. It is good to be here with you this morning. One of the most famous plays, I think, of all time is probably Romeo and Juliet, right, by Bill Shakespeare. Even if you, like me, aren't a big fan of Shakespeare, you probably have a working grasp of Romeo and Juliet, right? Two star-crossed lovers whose love is forbidden because of a family feud. Uh, Juliet is being forced by her father to marry another man. She takes a poison that will make her appear to be dead for a few days. Romeo, however, thinks that Juliet is truly dead and takes his own life. And as he draws his last breath, Juliet wakes up from that sleep and seeing Romeo dead leads her to kill herself, right? No wonder it's called a tragedy. Everybody dies at the end. Do we have this, uh, this comic on the screen? Can we get that on there? There's a snarky, cynical comic that I love. No? Oh, I didn't get you my PowerPoint. That's all right. It's my fault. <laughs> You'll just have to picture it. It's a comic in three panels. And on the first panel, it says, Romeo and Juliet's families hate each other. And it's got a picture of Romeo and Juliet, and then the dad's there, and they're shaking their fists at each other. And then the next panel, it says, Romeo and Juliet love each other. And there they are standing, staring at each other. Eye, or their heart, eyeballs are hearts and things like that. And then the last panel of it, Romeo and Juliet kill themselves. <laughs> That's the story in a nutshell, right? And one of the most famous scenes in that play is a scene that takes place on a balcony. Juliet is on the balcony of her room looking over the gardens, bemoaning the fact that, uh, bemoaning the feud that her, between her Capulets and Romeo's Montagues, right? And Romeo is down in the garden listening to Juliet waxing poetic. Kind of a, a creeper, isn't he? <laughs> but anyway, he's there in the garden and Juliet is, is saying these things and she's frustrated between the, the fight between the families and she wishes they could just get along and not be divided by this family fight. She wishes that they could just be boy and girl. And then she says this. She says, a name? What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And her point is that it doesn't matter if Romeo is a Capulet or a Montague. He would still be her same sweet Romeo, no matter what his last name is, right? A name. What's in a name? And although Juliet's sentiment is sweet, she's kind of wrong. Uh, There's actually quite a bit wrapped up in a name. And we acknowledge, yes, that Juliet is right on many levels. It doesn't matter what your last name is. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what side of the tracks you grew up on, right? You can grow up to be anything you want and do whatever you want and those sorts of things, right? So in that regard, Juliet is 100% correct. However, in Bible times, there was actually quite a bit that was wrapped up in a name, In Bible times, a name was more than just a mere designation for a particular person. It did more than just identify which family you belonged to. 
In Bible times, especially in the Old Testament, a name captured the character, captured the essence, captured the identity of the person. Names meant something. Think of some of the names in the Old Testament. Adam or Adam simply means man. All right, uh, Abraham or Abram, I'm sorry, means exalted father, and then God changed his name to Abraham, which means the f- exalted father of a multitude. Esau meant red, which described his physical condition from his head to his toes. Uh, Jacob means he cheats. Israel means he strives with God. Isn't that one fitting for Israel <laughs> over the course of their, uh, of their existence? Uh, Moses' name, which uh, comes from the word, Hebrew word to draw out, was given to him after he was pulled from, drawn out from the Nile River. The angel told Mary to name her baby Jesus, Yeshua, and that comes from the Hebrew word which means to save or savior because As the angel told Mary and Joseph, he will save his people from their sins. These names weren't just names. They were reflections of the person's character, essence, identity. And the same thing goes for the Lord God and for his name. His name means something. The name of the Lord reveals to us who he is, tells us about his essence, his identity, his character, The Lord's name tells us who he is. And this morning's sermon text is a bit longer. And it starts in Exodus 33 and finishes up in Exodus 34. And because the text is so long, I'm not going to read it all at the beginning like I normally do. But we're going to try to take it bit by bit in these bite-sized portions this morning. And as we do, I want to notice three very important truths. And uh, in in Exodus 33, verses 18 through 23, we find that first truth. And we find a request that's granted. I invite you to find your Bibles and to stand with me as I read at least this first part here. Exodus chapter 33, beginning at verse 18, reading this morning in Jesus' name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord God, I do thank you for uh, this, your word, and for how it reveals to us your glory and who you are. And we pray that today you would uh, make more of your glory known to us, that we would know who you are, Lord, and we would, as Moses does eventually in this text, fall down and worship you because of who you are. We invite you into this place today. Clear all distractions away from our minds, for they are many. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
Moses' request, the request that God grants is this. He says, show me your glory. And glory is one of those churchy words that we use often, but sometimes we kind of have a hard time defining. In Scripture, glory means two things. First, it's the sort of the traditional way we think of glory. It relates to the word praise. All praise and honor, all glory, all blessings go to God alone, right? That one we we kind of understand, we kind of get. There's a second way that the word glory is used in Scripture, and it's the way that Moses uses it here in verse 18 when he prays, Show me your glory. Here, glory refers to all of God's majesty, his holiness, his perfection, his splendor, his goodness, his presence. God's glory is God's holiness on display. And this is a bold request of Moses. Show me your glory. Show me who you are. Show me your holiness. And the Lord God grants Moses his requests. God promises to let Moses see his glory, his majesty, his holiness on display. Uh, Again, look at your Bibles at verse 19. The Lord says, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And as we first read that verse, God seems to be jumping around a bit in his thoughts. First he's talking about letting his goodness pass by Moses. Then he's talking about proclaiming his name to Moses. Then he's talking about the fact that he's merciful and gracious and things like that. At first glance, it seems God is a bit scatterbrained in what's going on here. But these three things, his, his passing by, the proclaiming of his name, the, the presentation of mercy and grace are all connected. It's as if God is saying, I will pass by and you will see my glory. I'm going to show you my glory by proclaiming my name to you, by showing you all that I am. But God is saying, you cannot see all of my glory or it would consume you and you would die. And so the Lord told Moses that he would put him in a cleft of the rock, in a, in a crack or a fissure of the rock. And then he would cover that crack with his hand. And then after the Lord had proclaimed his name and had passed by, he would remove his hand and Moses would be able to get a, a glimpse of God's glory as it departed. And that's what the songwriter alluded to in the hymn that we just sang, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. He's talking about Moses hiding in that rock. And for Moses, the cleft of the rock there meant safety, meant protection, as the Lord granted Moses his request to be shown God's glory. And the Lord was also doing another amazing, wonderful thing for Moses. The second truth this morning is found in Exodus 34, verses 1 through 4. And that's a brokenness repaired, a brokenness repaired. Look at these verses with me and listen for the brokenness that's being repaired. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. 
Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hands the two tablets of stone. What brokenness had the Lord set out to repair? What, pro- what promise did he make of, of, of repairing? It was those two tablets of stone. If you remember your Old Testament, uh, the Lord God had created two tablets of stone and, and wrote on them with his finger the words of the covenant, right? But Moses shattered them after the golden calf incident. He was so angry at Israel for worshiping an idol right after, by the way, right after the Lord had spoken himself directly to the people of Israel, had spoken the words of the Ten Commandments to them directly from heaven. And right after Israel made a promise, made a covenant to worship the Lord God alone, they broke it. It's as if Israel had just gotten married here uh, at the front of the church, and then by the time they were down the aisle, they had had an affair. That's what's going on in, in Israel's spiritual life. And Moses, when he witnessed the idolatry and the unfaithfulness of the Israelites, he, he took the tablets with the, with the words of, of the promise on them, the covenant on them, and he broke them. And this breaking of the tablets symbolized the breaking of the covenant by Israel. And in verse 1 of this sermon text, God tells Moses again to cut two tablets of stone and to bring them back up to the mountain. Then God says, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablet. This means in a sense that the Lord is renewing, he is repairing the covenant that Israel broke. Israel broke the covenant, the promises, but the Lord is promising to take matters into his own hands and to fix that broken covenant. Thankfully, our God is in the business of repairing what is broken. Uh, Ever since I was a kid, I've loved to take things apart, right? Uh, Fixing them, putting them back together, (laughs) that's a different story, right? You always end up with more screws and more parts, and yet somehow the thing works. (laughs) Why are those there in the first place, right? Uh, But the Lord God, the expert creator, is in the business of repairing, perfectly repairing broken things. And one of the things that God has fixed is you. Because of your sin, your relationship with your Lord God, with the Creator, was broken, completely and utterly destroyed, like a, like a china plate dropped from uh, the, the ceiling of the church onto the parking lot, right? Shattered, destroyed, broken beyond human repair. But the Lord God wasn't content to leave you broken in your sin. He has put you back together, but not with super glue. No, he put you back together with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. As Jesus' blood was shed on the cross, that relationship, our broken relationship with our creator, with the Lord God, has been mended. And if you aren't a Christian, if you haven't repented of your sins, if you haven't received the Lord Jesus as your Savior, don't wait. God loves to fix broken things. And the, loves he, the thing he loves to fix the most is you. He has to fix your relationship with him. But even after your broken relationship with your creator is mended, the Lord still has lots of work to do in our own life, doesn't he? 
Now, the moment we become a Christian, we, we don't become perfect in this life. Far from it. We still have lots of hurts, lots of brokenness with our own hearts that need to be repaired, past wounds that need mending, past breaks that need healing. And sometimes these hurts, these breaks, they can take years or decades even to heal just as it takes weeks for a broken bone to heal or or maybe even years for cancer treatments, the brokenness of our own hearts and lives can take time to heal. But we're often impatient, aren't we? we? We want it now. We want healing and fixing now. But again, God does this in his own time frame, in his own way, and sometimes we have to wait. And in the meantime, the words of David in Psalm 27 are are a constant encouragement. Wait for the Lord, David says. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. God is in the business of fixing broken things. Let him fix you. Let him repair you. And by the way, what's the Lord's primary tool for repairing people? It's this right here. It's his word. His word simultaneously breaks the hardness of our hearts, but then mends that which has been broken. (laughs) Are you broken today? Turn to his word. Let his work have its let his word have its work in your life. And then there's a third thing that I want to look at this morning, and it's this a name proclaimed. And it's found in chapter 34, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. This is where we find God fulfilling his promise to Moses and where God is is showing Moses his glory. Look at these verses with me here, verses 5 and and following. And don't miss this because this is beautiful. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation." And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. This is truly an awesome passage, isn't it? There's a lot of awesome and amazing things packed in here. And the first truly awesome thing, and I know we we abuse that word awesome, don't we? We, You know, awesome uh, football game, right? Awesome meal that I have. Oh, you have such an awesome car, right? But there there are some things in this passage that are truly awesome awe-inspiring and amazing. And the first one is this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses. That is truly awesome, is it not? Uh, This verse should really knock our socks off. Why? (laughs) Because the Lord God Almighty, the creator of the universe, the Holy One, the one who is so holy, he he dwells in unapproachable light. The, The one true God, the Lord himself, descends from the throne room of heaven, descends in a cloud, and he stands there with Moses. That is truly awesome, isn't it? It's no wonder that Moses' face was eventually shining, radiating the glory of God after he spoke with the Lord. 
And the second truly awesome thing that occurs in this passage is that the Lord proclaims his name to Moses. I want to look at these verses again, just verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Excuse me. Remember, a, a name is, is very important in Hebrew thought. It's not just a moniker. A name described the essence, the, the characteristics uh, of an individual, their identity. Uh, a name is somebody, who somebody is as a person. And this, this is who the Lord God is. This is his character. This is his nature. This is his essence and his identity. Do you want to know how to get to know God better? Do you want to know him better? you want to know what he's like? Look no further than these verses. This is God. And let's look. Let's unpack these seven-ish characteristics or, or attributes of God, if you will. Depending on how you group these together, there could be more, there could be less. But there, there are about seven. We don't have time to fully do these justice this morning. Each should have their own sermon. But I do want to talk about them briefly because this is God's name. This is his identity. Let's look at the first two together. God is merciful and gracious. The Lord God is full of mercy. He is full of grace. It overflows from him. And oftentimes in our, just our Christian talk or everyday talk, we use these two words interchangeably. But there are some vast differences between them, right? Mercy is the withholding of punishment that is due. Let's say, for example, you're, uh, you're on your way to the lakes, right? And you're driving down Highway 10 here about 85 miles an hour going through Glendon at 85. That does happen often, doesn't it, right? But uh, the Glendon Police Department is is good at making sure people slow down and and obey those speed limits. And just your luck, right? The cop catches you going 85 through town. And lights and sirens, and you obediently pull over and over to the side of the road. And as the cop walks up to the car, you're thinking, man, this is it. I'm done. Uh, This is it. I'm going to lose my license, everything like that. The cop tells you the speed limit in town, 35, I believe is what it is, right? He tells you how fast you are going, 85. That's 50 miles an hour over the limit. He tells you for that excessive amount of speed, he has every right to take away your license, haul you off to jail for a couple of days, give you a big old fine, things like that. But instead, he is merciful, and he lets you off without even a warning. (laughs) Mercy is withholding the punishment that is rightly due. And then grace is the flip side of that same coin. Grace is receiving blessings where none belong. Grace is favor. Grace is is getting, uh, using car analogies again, grace is is getting ready to purchase a car with uh, with 500 bucks, right? It just happens to be your life savings. What kind of car can you purchase for 500 bucks? Not much, right? (laughs) So you you show up at the dealership with your 500 bucks ready to buy that hunk of junk. You you tell the salesman what you can afford, and uh, instead of laughing you off the lot, which you probably deserved, right, uh, he smiles at you, and he he brings you down the the aisle with all those $800,000 or $80,000 luxury SUVs, right? 
and uh, you think he's just being rude, just pulling your leg here, but then he says, you know, put your money away. You can pick out any car on the lot. Somebody paid for it for you, right? That's grace, favor and blessing that you do not deserve. God is graceful. God is merciful. God is gracious. The Lord God withholds the punishment that's due to us because of our sin, and he showers us with blessings, even though we do not deserve any of it. God is merciful, and God is gracious. Uh, he's also, he says, slow to anger. If you had a, a King James Bible and you were reading along, you, you probably read the words, God is long-suffering. I like that translation. <laughs> it means that God is patient. He's got a long fuse. It takes him a long time to get angry and to dish out punishment. And it's a good thing that God is slow to anger, that he is long-suffering. If he wasn't, if he had a short fuse, Israel would have been destroyed, all wiped off the map multiple times. <laughs> and in fact, right, I mentioned it earlier, just chapters before uh, the, uh, the golden calf incident, right, when Israel worshipped the golden calf, right after they promised to be faithful to him, but yet God was patient with Israel and is also very patient with us today as well. He is long-suffering. Uh, Peter says this, he says, God is patient with us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's patient with us, wanting us to come to him. He wants all to be saved. And he's also patient with us in our lives because he works on us over time through his word. He wants us all to come to him, but he also wants us all to be sanctified. And that's a process, and he knows that. He is patient with us. Let's look at the next two characteristics as a group, number four and five, if you're following along in your bulletin there. The Lord is also abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We understand what faithfulness is, right? Faithfulness is the, the character, the quality of being faithful, of being loyal, of being honest and true. And the Lord God is full of faithfulness, uh, abounding, overflowing with loyalty towards you, his people. He, he's faithful to you. He's loyal to you. He will never leave you. He'll never forget you. He'll never leave when you start sinning. The Lord is always there. Uh, we, we, we can understand faithfulness. The word steadfast love maybe is a little bit harder for us to wrap our heads around sometimes. We, and unfortunately, we don't have a, a direct way to translate this particular Hebrew word that's used here. Uh, the Hebrew word is chesed. Can you say that with me? Chesed. Oh, come on again. Chesed. And you've got to get a lot of phlegm in your throat there. Chesed, right? That's the word there. It means steadfast love, covenant loyalty, uh, covenant faithfulness. And the best thing we can do is actually to make up a word to translate this one. The word loving kindness was actually coined in order to translate chesed into English. Chesed is that love, that loyalty, that faithfulness that will never leave, ever. And God is abounding, overflowing in loving kindness and faithfulness to you. And this steadfast love of God is, as the Lord tells us in verse 7, kept for thousands. It's not something he is short on. He is overflowing with it. And when he says that he keeps love for thousands, what exactly is he referring to? Thousands of people, thousands of years. What is he, what is he going on with there? 
not to look too far ahead, but at the end of verse 7, uh, it talks about thousands of generations of people. And, and I believe that here in the beginning of verse 7, God is also talking about thousands of generations. God keeps his steadfast love for thousands of generations. And that is a very, very long time. If you want to do the math, I'll let you do that. Thousands of generations. The sixth characteristic of God is this. He's forgiving. God is forgiving. He's a forgiving God. He says in the middle of verse 7, he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. God is a forgiving sin. God is a forgiving God. He does not hold a grudge. He does not keep bringing up past sins and wrongs. He is forgiving. When King David reflected on God's forgiveness of our sins, he, David pointed out that God separates our sins as far as the east is from the west, right? So far does he remove our transgressions from among us. East and west never meet, do they? It's a long way away. Our sins have been completely separated, completely removed for us. They have been forgiven. And the final characteristic quality, essence of God in these verses is found in the last part of verse 7. And it's this. God is just. God is just. It says, uh, he, will no, he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Well, God is merciful, God is gracious, God is full of love. He is also a just God. He doesn't simply wink at sin and say, ah, it's okay, you're okay, we're all okay, just forget it, we're okay, things like that. No, God is a just God, a just God who must punish sin when it needs to be punished. And there are a lot of questions that revolve around this statement here of the Lord where it says he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children. What is going on here? Does this mean that you, Josh, are going to be punished for Jason's sins? Is that what's going on? That's not exactly what's going on here at all. We know that each person is responsible and accountable for their own sins. So what is going on here? kind of helps to break this verse down and to look at some of the parts, uh, each individual thing that's going on. The word that the Lord uses in this verse, in verse 7, is iniquity. And iniquity isn't just simply a sin. It's, iniquity is more than a missing of the mark. Iniquity is that gross perversion of God's law. Iniquity is a, is a twisting and a distorting of what God has created and, and twisting it for your own benefit and your own pleasure. Iniquity is the big sins, if we can quantify them like that. Sins like sexual perversions, witchcraft, divinations, drunkenness, debauchery, those sorts of things. That is iniquity. And the Lord says that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers onto the children. And very simply, we could, we could break it down and summarize it like this. The choices that you make in life do not only affect you, but they also affect the generations who will follow you. What you do, your children will most likely do as well. How you act, your children will most likely act as well. 
take, for example, a, a very awful situation, right, of, of a husband who gets drunk and abuses his wife every night, right? Not only is he doing this terrible, awful, wicked thing against her, but his children see it. And sadly, they think that's normal. And they begin to think that, well, this is how every family operates. And then when they grow up, they model what they saw their parents doing. And sadly, this downward trend continues on, generation after generation. Your choices and your sins don't just affect you. They affect those around you as well. These verses, however, do not mean that you are fated to follow in your parents' footsteps and lifestyle. This does not mean that you will fall into the same proclivities and sins as your parents. There is grace. There is mercy. There is forgiveness. After I attended the Free Lutheran Bible College in Minneapolis, I moved down to Florida where I helped a new church plant. And while there, I became friends with, uh, with a guy by the name of Jamal. Jamal had recently become a Christian. And Jamal's father and Jamal's grandfather and his great-grandfather and as far back as Jamal could remember, uh, they had all been alcoholics. Alcoholism had become a generational curse. The son saw the father do it and he figured that was normal and down on the line it went. And Jamal was starting on that same path as his father and grandfather and great-grandfather when he met Jesus. Jamal was saved and, and, and everything in his life changed. Uh, those generational curses, the iniquity that followed from father to son and was passed down from generation to generation had stopped with Jamal because of Jesus. Jesus has the power to break every chain, to break every stronghold. Jesus is where those generational curses end. The Lord is merciful. The Lord is gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is forgiving and he is just. And if you want, you could study those verses all week, all month, and probably not mind the depths of what's in there, what's God's character and nature. And how did Moses respond to the Lord's proclamation of his name? Look at verse 8 again. Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. I think the New American Standard translates it, translates it as Moses made haste <laughs> to bow down and worship. He fell down and he worshipped. At that point, there's not much else you can do, right? God has just passed by in all of his glory, has just proclaimed his name to you and all that he is. What other action would be appropriate? I cannot think of a better one. <laughs> Moses encountered God and he worshipped. And all this week during vacation Bible school, we learned about the one true God. Did we not? He is our creator. He is our redeemer. I wish you each could have been here this week and, and seen this place. It was hopping, literally hopping, right? I think we had uh, 60 kids, um, around 60 kids. Pretty good for COVID era, isn't it? And we had about 35 volunteers all while attempting to maintain <laughs> social distancing and things like that. 
There were 42 blankets that were uh, tied together for Project Ignite Light, and that's uh, the blankets that you see out on the table there. And those are going to be going to this ministry, Project Ignite Light, that uh, ministers to kids who have been taken out of abusive homes because of neglect or, or other reasons, abuse, things like that, and it connects them with, uh, with good people and good Christians. And We get to give a, a part of this. We get to give blankets to them, just showing a little bit of the love of God, things like that. We also raised $570 for the Waikiki gathering. We're going to watch a little video uh, just in, in a minute about that, but I wanted to take time too uh, to publicly acknowledge all of our volunteers who are here for VBS. If you volunteered at VBS in any capacity this week, whether you were a group leader or the uh, director of VBS, I would like you to stand. Uh, everybody stand. If you're in the kitchen, please stand. Uh, we want to give you thanks for your work, for your hard work here this week too, right? Uh, we could not have made this, this could not have been possible without you, without your help. And there were many more uh, that are not here now. Thank you for making all of this go well. And Shanice, a special thanks to you as, as director hurting us as cats and getting us <laughs> where we needed to go and, and things like that for putting in all of those that volunteer effort. I, I do appreciate that. It, it is no easy task. Um, we do want to show a little bit of a video. Uh, Luke, if you want to get this Waikiki video gathering, we mentioned that we had $570 raised for the Waikiki Beach Gathering. That's one of our church plants in Honolulu, Hawaii. They reach out to uh, 50, 40 to 50 people each Sunday for service on the beach, and they have church right there on the beach. And uh, they do a, an event called One Night with the King each year. And it's an outreach to homeless individuals where they wash their feet, they provide a meal, things like that. And the money that the kids raised at VBS this week is going directly to them so that they can uh, continue on in that. And we did want to show this video too just as a, <laughs> a thank you from them to us as a congregation. Thank you, Maranatha. Mahalo, Maranatha. Thank you, Maranatha. Thank you, Maranatha. We love you. Thank you, Maranatha. 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 So thank you, parents, for bringing your kids and encouraging them to give and to give to the church beyond our walls and reaching out again to some of the least of these. As we visited Mystery Island this year in VBS, we learned again all about the one true God. I had the, the privilege of teaching, and we learned some of his characteristics, some of his attributes, that he is great, that he's the Almighty, that he is the ruler, he's Emmanuel, he's trustworthy. And although we didn't talk about it at VBS, uh, specifically Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, God's revelation of his name to Moses and to the people of Israel and his characteristics and attributes came into play every single day as we learned who God was. I began this morning by asking, what's in a name, right? And as it turns out, Everything. Everything is in a name. In the Old Testament, a name was very important. It described the character, the essence of somebody. 
And in Exodus again, 34, the Lord proclaims his name, who he is, to Moses. Who is the Lord? Who is the one true God? What is he like? The Lord, the Lord a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That is our God. That is the one true God. Amen. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for revealing to Moses and to us today your glory and who you are. Again, we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy poured out to us through Jesus on the cross. We don't deserve any of it. Thank you for coming and fixing our brokenness, the broken relationship with you and all the ways that we are broken. Father, continue to do your work in our lives. Have your will and your way in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.